0: What I do see is that people with sensory issues that are not fully addressed start to have some behavioral problems and attention problems because they're so preoccupied with what's happening to their bodies that it interferes with attention and interferes with learning and interferes
1: with focus and self-regulation. around the world, so you'll get to hear the latest evidence-based strategies before anyone else. This is the School Behaviour Secrets Podcast. Hi there, my name's Simon Currigan, and welcome to episode 30 of School Behaviour Secrets. Yes, believe it or not, we've made it to the big 3-0, and let's be honest, most discerning podcast listeners certainly can't believe it. This podcast is living proof of what you get if you combine having too much time on your hands with bags of overconfidence and a staff meeting agenda that starts with the words, it's Juno Clock. My co-host Emma Shackleton is here with me. Hi, Emma. Hi, Simon. Emma, I'd like to start this episode by asking you a question. Is there a noise or sound that really annoys you?
2: Yes, Simon. You coughing during podcast recording.
1: You mean really close to the microphone, so it hurts your ears. Yes,
2: and not using the mute button. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) why are you asking me
1: this week? Because to some extent, we are all affected by our senses. And when our brains and bodies invest energy trying to regulate that sensory information it drains us of our ability to concentrate or regulate our emotions. And in today's show, I speak to occupational therapist and award-winning author Lindsay Biel about what it means to have sensory processing issues and what we can do to support pupils in our classrooms to overcome those issues and regulate more successfully.
2: That sounds interesting. But before we press play on that interview, I've got a quick favour to ask. Open your podcast app now and share this episode with three colleagues or friends who you think would find this episode interesting. Sharing is easy. Most podcast apps have a share button that allows you to send a direct link by text, email or messaging And it means that they can also get the help they need to support their students too. And now, here's Simon's interview with Lindsay Biel.
1: I'd like to introduce you to our guest today, Lindsay Biel. She's a paediatric occupational therapist in New York City, where she evaluates and treats young people with sensory processing issues, developmental delays, autism spectrum disorders, and other challenges. She's also the co-author of the award-winning book, Raising a Sensory Smart Child, The Definitive Handbook for Helping Your Child with Sensory Processing Issues and Sensory Processing Challenges Effective Clinical Work with Kids and Teens. Lindsay is here to talk to us today about how a child's sensory needs can affect their emotional regulation and behaviour. Lindsay, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks for speaking with us today. My pleasure. I'd like to start by unpicking what does it mean to have a sensory processing issue?
0: Okay, so let's start with what sensory processing is. Uh, To clarify that, and all of us first learn about the world through our senses, even in the womb, a young child touches things and hears things and sees things and moves their body through space and learns about the limits of their body and, and where the external world begins and how all of these different parts work together and sensory processing is how the little human being takes all of those separate pieces of information and transforms it into information that they can use so that they can function and respond in you know the most appropriate way Now, for some people, because of differences in nervous system wiring, and I'm talking about the brain, the way their brains are, their bodies are working, they get in that information a little bit differently, and they use the information a little bit differently. And I'm not going to say poorly or dysfunctionally, it's just, it's a difference. And so what begins to happen when you're not getting accurate and reliable sensory messages about the world and your own body, you start to have some out of proportion reactions to experiences that you or I may think like, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, a goat <laughs> bleeding. Um, <laughs> or, you know, oh, gee, it's just a light. It's just an overhead light. What's the problem? And and the person may have like this out of proportion Reaction that's a little baffling for a lot of us that don't have sensory issues. Now, you and I, we all have some sensory preferences and intolerances. It's on like a continuum. Like, I don't like clothing tags in my shirts. I cut them out. I don't like fluorescent lights. In fact, I hate them. But it doesn't really interfere with my ability to get things done. For someone with stronger sensitivities, this can be a real problem. There are people who tend to be more hypersensitive like to have very strong reactions. It's like the volume control is up on any one of those senses. You know, sounds can come in like too loud or certain frequencies of sound or touches can feel like more intense than we may think. This kind of thing. So it's like the person for whom everything's coming in is experienced as too much. And this person may be kind of guarded and try to control what's happening to their bodies and maybe get a little bit avoidant. You know, they don't want to brush their teeth. They don't want to have lotion put on their body. They don't want to use that icky glue, things like that. Other people, the way their bodies are, and brains are wired are hyposensitive or under meaning they need a lot of input for it to really register for them to be able to use it. So this might be the good example is the child who's just kind of sprawled all over the floor at school, or, you know, doesn't want to get up off the couch at home. It's just hard to get them aroused. They're a little bit lethargic because they're not getting those alerting sensory messages. Now, in fact, most people are kind of mixed. Some days they're fine. Some situations they're fine. And other times they're not so fine. They have a lot of trouble with consistency and self-regulation. One day the t-shirt with Elsa from Frozen is like the best thing to wear. And the next day it might hurt a child's body. And you're thinking, how can that hurt your body? But, you know, the nervous system is so inconsistently
1: functioning that it becomes
0: problematic.
1: That's going to be quite draining for the child. What's the impact on them surviving and succeeding in the classroom?
0: Well, you know, with an understanding parent, an understanding teacher, and with good professional intervention, a child can learn to better tolerate the inevitable experiences that the world offers for us. And I often give the image of going to a picnic with a paper plate in your hand and you have this paper plate and you're at a picnic and you put on, let's say a taco and that's fine, you know, and then some potato chips. And then you go for a little bit of potato salad. Plate's getting heavy, but you're okay. But then you go for some coleslaw and your whole plate falls apart. So in order to be successful, the people helping that child need to figure out just how much that person's paper plate handle on any given day without falling apart and figure out how to strengthen that paper plate so it's stronger and more able to manage the inevitable sensory challenges throughout the day. You know, there are a lot of accommodations that a classroom teacher can provide for a student who's struggling this way. And a lot of things that a parent can do as a therapist also gives tools that help to increase the child's ability to tolerate input.
1: In the UK, certainly there's a lot of awareness of around how children with autism often present with sensory difficulties, but sensory processing disorder is sort of a separate diagnosis that has much less awareness, certainly on this side of the Atlantic. Can you talk about the differences and the commonalities between those two?
0: Absolutely. Just because someone has sensory processing difficulties does not mean they are on the autism spectrum. But almost everybody who is on the autism spectrum, has sensory issues. Unfortunately, what happens is people who are diagnosed as autistic tend to have the most extreme sensory issues, strong sensory issues and potentially disabling sensory issues. So again, it's a continuum, but you know, to be clear, there are people with attention disorders who have sensory problems. There are people with all kinds of diagnoses, physical disabilities, People who have experienced adverse childhood events—all different kinds of people can have sensory issues. So it kind of cuts across all of these labels and diagnoses. And there are also there's a you know some people who really don't qualify for any kind of diagnosis otherwise, um, who just have sensory issues. But what I do see is that people with sensory issues that are not fully addressed start to have some behavioral problems and attention problems because they're so preoccupied with what's happening to their bodies that it interferes with attention and interferes with learning and interferes with focus and self-regulation. So we can't think of these diagnoses as like these neat silos You know, this fits in this silo, and then over here is this stuff, and oh, she's got this, so she's got to be in this silo. You know, it's not really like that. The good news is that teachers, parents can use many of the same strategies, no matter what's going on underneath, desensitizing to tactile input, touch input, desensitizing to... Frequencies of sound, getting rid of fluorescent lights, providing supportive, comfortable seating that helps the child to, or adult. I tend to say child, but it's all different ages to help them feel more comfortable sitting and able to attend, providing a weighted wearable, a weighted lap pad or shoulder shrug, to help to literally ground them in space and feel more comfortable, these kinds of things.
1: I've just finished reading your book around raising a sensory smart child. And whether you're a parent or a teacher or both, if you're sitting and listening to this and wondering, how do I find the right kind of compensatory strategies to support my child? Your book is just full of them. You say, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the solution, here's the solution. It's so clearly written. If you're listening to this, I thoroughly recommend it. It's an excellent book. In your book, actually, one of the things that you say that touches on what you've just been talking about in terms of children trying to manage that sensory load that I found really, really interesting that I'd not really thought about before is that you say that children with sensory problems often have a sort of weak or inconsistent connection between their vestibular system and their other senses. Could you explain what the vestibular system is and what you mean by the link between that and the other systems and why that impacts on their ability to regulate?
0: It's such a complex question because it is the key question, right? So first of all, a definition of the vestibular system, because that's, you know, we all learned about the five senses, you know, and they're actually much more complex than what we learned, but there are three other senses. Just quickly, the vestibular system is a key one, and that is your sense of movement and your relationship to gravity. And the vestibular receptors are uh, located in the inner ear and they can tell which way is up at all times. They can tell if you're speeding up or slowing down. It's what tells you if you had your eyes closed and you were on an elevator, you could tell if you were going up or down. Right, You could tell if you're in a rocking chair and you're rocking back and forth, the fluids are swishing around in your ears telling you about the movement and the speed and all of that. There's also a sensory system called proprioception. And that is the sensory system. Its uh, receptors are located in the joints, muscles, and connective tissue of the body. And that's what tells you where your body parts are in space. It's your sense of body awareness. It's how you can tie your shoelaces without looking at what you're doing. It's like muscle memory, we call it. So the vestibular system and the proprioceptive system work seamlessly, kind of like a GPS system for the body. And the vestibular system is the key sensory system that gives you your sense of safety and security. It tells you where you are on the planet and it's joined in by the proprioceptive system. You know, not only are you here, but all your body parts are here and there's your hand and there's your arm and there's your foot. So just to add the third one, because people may be wondering, then I'll talk about the linkages. There's also the interoceptive system and that's very important that's our sense of the physiological condition of our bodies do we need to use the loo do we need to eat something is your heart beating rapidly are you breathing rapidly this kind of thing so all of these things have everything to do they all work together to tell us you're safe you're okay everything's fine whoops you're losing your balance you better tighten up your muscles and yourself back up. Okay, do that. And it's all these neuromuscular things that have to go on. And we're also linking with our vision, right? We need to see what we're reaching for. And by linking with our vision, we know when to stop reaching because our hand is almost there. Reaching for a glass of milk on a table, like you're using all of your senses, your vision, and your proprioception and your vestibular system to position yourself and then reach gracefully, hopefully without, you know, using your vision to slow down as you're getting near so you don't knock over that glass of milk. So it all connects. And when it doesn't connect seamlessly and automatically the way it does for most people can really start to have some problems. You can have some, and it sounds like a judgmental term, but you know, clumsiness, right? The child is tripping over their own feet. They're bumping into other children because they're not using their visual vestibular proprioceptive information in an effective and accurate way. A child leaning over to pick up a pencil, if they have a vestibular problem may become very dizzy and disoriented, these kinds of issues. So it becomes very complex. I hope that gives you a taste of that.
1: I'd just like to take a pause for a moment and say that if you're finding this podcast useful, then you're going to love what we've got waiting for you in our Inner Circle program. The Inner Circle is your one-stop shop for all things behavior. It's a comprehensive platform filled with videos, resources, and behavior inspiration to get you unstuck with classroom behavior. We've got training resources on de-escalation, supporting kids with anxiety, support strategies for conditions like autism, ADHD, and PDS. Practical ways of helping pupils deal with strong emotions, assertive behavior management techniques for managing the whole class, setting out your classroom environment for success, resetting behavior with tricky classes, and more. Our online videos walk you through practical solutions step by step just like netflix you can turn an inner circle subscription on or off whenever you need to with no minimum contract plus you can now get your first seven days of inner circle for just one pound get the behavior answers you've been looking for today with inner circle visit beaconschoolsupport.co.uk and click on the inner circle picture near the top of the home page for more information We can see how the brain does an amazing magic trick of combining all this complex sensory information and making it seem to most people effortless. You don't even think about moving your hand towards a cup of tea to pick it up and the pressure information involved and getting the trajectory of the mug right so it doesn't spill water all over your face. So if you have difficulties with the vestibular system, the proprioception system, all working together, how does that affect your emotional regulation? Why might that cause you to have difficulties regulating emotions?
2: Well,
0: if you don't feel safe and you don't feel secure in itself, is going to cause some problems. Let's say you're a student at school and all the other kids are eating their lunch in the cafeteria and you're like so uncomfortable because of the noise. And, you know, you have this food in front of you and the texture you find really revolting. You know, you just, you can't handle it, especially as you get older, you start to look around, all the kids are running around the playground and having fun. What's wrong with me? Why do I feel more comfortable sitting in the shady part of the playground, maybe playing in the sandbox or just kind of hanging out and reading a book? You know, it's not that carefree play that other children can more readily engage in. It's very upsetting. Some kids don't quite realize it in the early years that they're different. You know, it can interfere with friendships if a child is acting out all the time. The other children may not want to play with that child or be near that child. You know, it may be a situation like, oh, here comes Johnny. I'm going to keep away. And that's very disturbing. So it can really interfere with self-esteem, tactile sensitivities, just can really set kids aside. And certainly adolescents, as they start reaching the age of, you know, you have to be wearing a certain fashion to be cool. And meanwhile, like a child, let's say blue jeans, you know, it's like, I I can't tolerate blue jeans, they hurt my body. So okay, you're the weirdo not wearing blue jeans and forget about dating or any kind of intimacy. That can be very, very challenging.
1: As a teacher, I'm trying to support a child in class, I suspect they've got sensory needs. I might be getting the support of an occupational therapist or another professional, and they start talking to me about sensory diets. Can you kind of explain what a sensory diet is and how it helps a student manage those sensory needs?
0: Okay. And it's great to work with an occupational therapist if you have access to one. And unfortunately, it's not so easy to get a hold of an OT in your area, your school district. So that's part of why I wrote my book, in the recognition that I really wanted to share the tools that I use with teachers, with parents, with other therapists, if they don't have access to someone. And not every OT has the information, but anyway... To answer your question, a sensory diet, and it's not a term that I love because I don't like to diet, (laughs) a sensory diet refers to a schedule of beneficial activities that's individualized for the student to help them feel comfortable throughout the day. You know, the correlate would be you wouldn't make a child be hungry all day long and feed them after school. You would give them something to eat before school and at snack time and at lunch and you know, you're not going to have this starving child, you're going to have a problem. So it's that kind of a concept. So it's activities. It's also accommodations. Again, it's that, you know, how are we going to bolster their ability to engage and how are we going to maybe change things to empower them to do so? A sensory activity at school may be before sit down to engage in some vestibular movement, like doing jumping jacks or stretching. I mean, there are so many games. Simon Says is one of my favorites to do with kids, and I can get them to do anything. I can get them to do my jumping jacks that I know will give them that pounding movement input if it's in the form of Simon Says. Or I use something called Wheel of Names, and I put in exercises, and we play that game together. So a lot of vestibular, in stretches, yoga, things like that before school. I also like deep breathing before having a child sit down to work for the day. And that could be in the form of a program like Take 5 Breathing, which is something people can look up on YouTube. There's a lovely video that explains it. A lot of kids don't know how to do this deep breathing that is so regulating If you ask them to take five deep breaths, they might breathe in really quickly and shallowly, and that only increases their arousal level. So what I do, what you can do is have them exhale. And how do we have kids exhale? They don't know how to do that. Have them make noise. So I'll do lion roaring. Let's roar like lions five times before we sit down. And the louder they roar, the better an inhalation they're getting. And that really brings the oxygen level up and the calming really kicking in. So that's a good thing. Doing that before sitting down. If a child has Tactile sensitivities, I will have them engage before, let's say, doing Play Doh or some kind of messy work. I'll do just what's called hand rubbing, and that's literally having them rub their hands. You can hear me doing it, right? Rubbing their hands palm to palm, palm to the top of the hand, switching hands, doing each finger. And of course, we're also teaching really good hand washing skills. But at the same time, if you'll feel your hands feel different, one of the things with kids is they don't know that they have all these different parts of their hands. They think their hands are like paws. (laughs) So if we really get in there into all the different parts of the hands, that helps to desensitize the hands and better enable them to touch something messy. Another thing in the classroom is to give kids a better sense of control using that getting messy thing. What you don't want is a child who's engaging in like, you know, some something with gluing on decorations on a form or something and then getting up every minute or two to wash their hands. This is counterproductive. So you're going to encourage them. Let's put on three decorations and then we can clean off our hands or better yet, just have like a damp towel nearby and they can wipe their hands off. You know, there's no law that says they have to get their hands really messy. So it's like respecting their sensitivities and accommodating that. And that is part of sensory diet. Also for kids taking regular breaks for kids who need to self-regulate offering the UK, I believe they call them ear defenders we call them sound reducing headphones, I like ear defenders, and now I'm using it all the time and explaining what it is because that's what it is. One thing I want to add is the ear defenders cannot be worn all day. Should not be worn throughout the school day and then, you know, save them for particular times that are really problematic school assemblies, fire drills, this kind of thing. If you wear them all day long, they're not going to be very effective and when you take them off, oh my goodness, the sound is going to be even louder than it was before. Proprioceptive and vestibular input are key parts of the sensory diet. So movement and pounding kinds of things are super important. Also, vibration is a very helpful part of sensory diet, but it is different for everybody. So what I often have schools set up, maybe with the help of an OT, is little shoe boxes. And in the shoe box, you're going to, with the child's help, maybe the OT, maybe the parent, put in a couple of items and create a sensory box that the child can take a short break with. That could include some therapy. For the child to squeeze. It might include some essential oil that the child loves that they find calming. Maybe a little picture book, things like that. Maybe a little vibrating toy the child can hold that is, you know, helps them. Maybe a little weighted lap pad or a weighted toy that just gives an opportunity to regulate using tools that they have selected that they feel good about. That's highly individualized. And that can help a lot. Hand fidgets, all those things. And I don't
1: call them fidget toys ever because they're not toys, they're tools. Lindsay, what I love about your book and the way you're speaking now is you just give practical example after practical example. We talk in this podcast about joining the dots between theory and practice. And I'm sure our listeners are getting loads of value out of this because you're doing exactly that. You've, you've told us about the theory. And then what do we do with that information in the classroom? If you're a teacher or a parent listening to this podcast, What's the first step you can take to learn more about how senses affect children at school or at home and what we can do to support them?
0: Well, it starts with understanding, right? So I created some screening tools that parents can use, teachers can use, anybody can use and just download from my website. Go ahead and and get them. Uh, They're in my books, but they're on the Sensory Smarts website, S-E-N-S-O-R-Y-S-M-A-R-T-S. Don't forget the S at the end. SensorySmarts.com. And go ahead and print that out and start to fill it out. And as you consider your answers, you're going to start to see certain patterns and certain situations that may be quite difficult. And what you want to do with that information, it's not scorable. This is not a standardized test or anything like that. It's a way of gaining information and insight. And what you want to do with this information is to predict situations that are likely to be problematic or definitely problematic, and then take steps to prevent problems. So let's say you've noticed your child, your student, has difficulty kind of around eleven thirty every day. That's like he just has a problem. He was fine in the morning. And then by eleven thirty he's had it. Then you start to think, okay, what can I do at eleven? Or eleven fifteen at the latest to change that. Do I need to give a snack? And by snack I don't mean a cookie or, you know, some Sugary juice. Like it's not a beneficial snack. Basically, you want to get some protein into the child to help to regulate their sugar levels because what starts to happen when a child gets hungry, especially a sensitive child, is blood sugar starts to drop and then the behavior starts to get a little bit wacky. So, do I need to give a protein snack to this child? Do I need to just give them some water? Are they getting dehydrated? Do I need to do a movement break, a breathing break, a sensory break? What do I need to do to help that person feel better and not have a meltdown at 1130? And at home, you know, the child goes to school. Hopefully children are going to in-person schooling these days. That's a whole different story. But, you know, after school or after remote school, if that's happening, is that the time to say, all right, now let's get your homework done and then we can go to the park? For some kids, they need to go to the park first. They need to get back on an even keel and then do whatever responsibilities they have. And I do want to say it's great to have this soapbox (laughs) because sometimes people make the mistake of you're engaging in out-of-bounds behavior, therefore you can't have recess today, or you can't go to the playground, or you can't do this or that, when in fact that's when the child needs it the most. And they're communicating that to you. All behavior is communication, including the out of bounds behavior. Predict, prevent. That's the key. And if the child has a meltdown, if you blew it because you couldn't predict and prevent, just be their child. You know, get them out of the situation, give them a chance. We can't say, hey, kiddo, you got to buck up. You know, once they've lost it, they've lost it. And compassion, understanding, Reduce sensory input, meaning like dim lights and, and not so much going on, not so much stimulation, will help a child to more quickly self-regulate and be available for learning and
1: playing again. One last question. Who is the key figure that's influenced you or what's the key book that you've read that's had the biggest impact on your approach to working with children?
0: Okay. I've been working with children for 22 years. Before I became an OT, I was a full-time writer, part of how I was easily able to pivot and then write a book. And early on, when I was thinking about what career I wanted to choose, I was in the Strand Bookstore in New York City, wonderful used bookstore, and I came across the Galley Proof. So it's pre-published of a book with this photo of a woman with a cow on the cover. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And she has such an interesting name, Temple Grandin. Hmm. So it was Temple Grandin's book, Thinking in Pictures. And I read it and I thought, oh, my gosh, I want to work with people like Temple. And she taught me about sensory issues. And she was so influential. So, you know, I had this idea of this is how autistic people are and they think in pictures and they experience life this way and they have problems because of X, Y, and Z. And then I read Dr. Don Prince Hughes' wonderful book, Songs of the Guerrilla Nation. Now, Dr. Hughes is um, an anthropologist A primatologist and an author. And she's since become a friend, but this is way back when it was first published, um, 2004. And she's very different from Temple Grandin, extremely different. And I thought, oh my goodness. I don't know what autistic people are because every person is different and they have different needs. And once you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. I mean, it's a cliche at this point, but this was a very important approach. Listen, ask, observe, and individualize how we deal with things. And as long as I mentioned Dr. Dawn Prince-Hughes, I loved her book so much that I introduced her book to a film producer and the screenplay has been written and you can watch for the film. Hopefully it's going to happen in the next year or two.
1: Wow, what a story. Yeah, I'm so thrilled about it. Lindsay, that's been so helpful. I'm sure so many of our listeners will have gotten practical advice from that around supporting kids and helping kids with sensory processing difficulties. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
2: Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. What I really like about that interview is Lindsay doesn't hold back. She just shares lots of practical examples and strategies that we can all use to help
1: with the kids that we work with. If you're currently working with children who have difficulty regulating, you may also be interested in one of the deep dive video training sessions we have available inside our Inner Circle library.
2: It's all about learning what drives pupils with autism to experience meltdowns. Plus, 15 simple practical strategies that you can use in your classroom to prevent meltdowns from happening in the first place. You can get instant access to this training called How to Prevent Meltdowns and 27 other training modules when you sign up for the Inner Circle programme. Right now, you can get a seven day trial of Inner Circle for only £1. And just like Netflix, you can turn the Inner Circle subscription on and off whenever you choose so you remain in
1: complete control. Head to beaconschoolsupport.co.uk and you'll see an inner circle link near the top of the page. I'll also include a direct link in the episode description.
2: In next week's episode, we'll be exploring the myths and unearthing the facts about FASD. That's Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. This is a must listen because you'll be surprised at just how many
1: children this issue affects. If you don't want to miss that episode, you could get in a biplane and take to the skies like a young Chuck Yeager in his prime, then scream at a passing cumulonimbus cloud, or a stratus nimbus if you live in a fancier part of town, and insist it rains down the next episode of School Behaviour Secrets as it's released. Or you could open your podcast app, tap the subscribe button, the follow button if you're using Apple Podcasts and your app will automatically download each and every episode for you so you never miss a thing.
2: That's it for this week's episode. We hope you have a brilliant week and we'll see you next time on School Behaviour Secrets. Bye-bye. Bye.